I think I'm going to skip the intro today. I don't really I don't really feel like doing the intro. So I got a couple of notes here. We'll we'll begin with the schedule. Uh, I think one of the most overhyped days in the NFL is schedule day because we already know most of the games ahead of time. Even we know them years in advance. So we're essentially we're just getting the order. But one thing that I do look at is trying to split up the schedule into smaller bunches. And you, you see how many times a team has a string of difficult games or a string of what we expect to be easier games. And two things that you want for a team, for a team that you, you hope can surprise people and make a jump, make a leap in a specific season, which I, I think we'd agree is the class that the New York Jets fall into. You know, they're, they're not viewed as Super Bowl candidates. They're not a team you look at as being able to bounce back from an 0-4 start or, or bounce back from losing five straight at any point during the season. So first off is get off to a strong start. And they open with the Buffalo Bills. And after the start that the Jets had last year, blowing the 16-0 lead in the opener against the Bills, not getting a win until week six of the season, going 1-7 and seven in the first half of the season, they need to set the tone this year. And they can absolutely do that by beating Buffalo, which is a very winnable game in the opener. And I know Buffalo was a playoff team last year. I know nationally they're going to have higher expectations than the Jets are. And I say nationally because locally, for Jets fans, for me, I think also for the local media, for the organization themselves, even though it's year two for Gase and just the first full year for the general manager. But it's year three for the quarterback. And I'm going to have expectations for this team. I'm going to have expectations for Sam Darnold. Russell Wilson won a Super Bowl in year two. Eli Manning won a Super Bowl in year four. I think people forget how young Eli was when the Giants beat the Pats in Super Bowl 42. It was just the fourth year in the league for Eli that season. Darnold is now in year three. So he needs to have some expectations. It can't just be considered another rebuilding year. So nationally, yes, the Bills have higher expectations because they were already in the playoffs with Josh Allen. They should have beat the Texans. Whereas the Jets looked incompetent offensively for most of the season. But the national media is going to say the Bills have higher expectations. But as a Jets fan, to me, the Jets need to look like a playoff team in year three of Sam Donald. I think this is the year that the excuses stop and that the pressure starts to fall on the quarterback. You're no longer a question mark in year three. If you don't have it by year three, you're probably not going to figure it out. So I'm not going to necessarily say playoffs or bust for the Jets and for Sam Darnold, but I'll say success or bust because I think it's necessary. I think it's reasonable to have expectations in year three. This is the year that now, now you should have it figured out. There, there's no more, well, we have a young quarterback. Now it's this is our quarterback. Now is the time to win with him. But back to the schedule, it's important to get off to a good start. The second thing that I look at is, like I said, it, it's finding groupings of games. So if you're going to have three really difficult games in a row, hope that the fourth game is an easier opponent. If you see the possibility of, of three straight losses on the schedule, that fourth game better be one where the Jets can have a dominant win, a morale booster to kind of right the ship, that, that type of game. So like in week eight and nine, it's Kansas City in Kansas City and then home New England. So back-to-back -back Chiefs and Patriots. Of course, that's without Tom Brady, but I still think the Patriots are going to be tough to beat, even with Jarrett Stidham at quarterback. But Chiefs, Pats, then it's Dolphins. So that's a good out game to avoid a losing streak. What I don't like is then it's Dolphins by Dolphins, because 
You look at Miami as still being a, a building team. We don't know if it's going to be Ryan Fitzpatrick or Tua. They don't, they don't have a ton of skill position players. I'd much rather mix them in at a different point in the season rather than back-to-back, where I can hopefully use them as an out game at a different time on the schedule. But now you're playing the Dolphins once. Then you both share the bye week. So you're giving now Brian Flores, who appears to be a pretty damn good coach. You know, that's at least the early return. It's only one year, but he's he certainly impressed last year with the Dolphins. You're giving Brian Flores a chance to take what he saw in Week 10, then prepare to beat you in Week 12. He has a full week to do that. So I don't like the back-to-back with a shared bye week. I don't like that at all. And then I also, I hate the entire last quarter of the schedule in Seattle, in Los Angeles. So back-to-back on the West Coast against teams with Super Bowl aspirations, followed by the Browns at home, and then in New England to close out the year. So you got three road games, three incredibly tough opponents. And where last year I thought the Browns were overhyped, this year I kind of think they're flying under the radar a bit, and I, I expect them to be around a nine-win team. So that, that's not an easy game. That's that's not a way you want to finish out the season. The, your, your one home game against the Cleveland Browns and then three road games against really tough opponents. And I'm also, I'm very curious what's going to happen with travel, those back-to-back weeks out on the West Coast. Because does does COVID-19, does it alter the thinking about whether or not the team should fly home to New York in between or just stay on the West Coast? I would think so. I, w- I would think it's going to impact that. You're going to want to try to limit travel as much as possible. So the Jets would likely stay out on the West Coast for both those games. And speaking of limiting travel, uh, John Clayton, before the schedule came out, John Clayton had reported that the league was going to make the first four games of this season non-conference games in case they needed to cancel part of the season because of the uh, the pandemic, which I thought it made a ton of sense. They did not do that. It was a, a false report, it turned out. Uh, the schedule was released, and it looks very much like a normal schedule with interconference and interdivisional opponents at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the schedule. And if you think about it, since sports began shutting down March 11th when Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz tested positive for COVID-19, the NBA immediately slammed the pause button. But since that happened, the NFL has just kept moving as normal. You know, when everybody said move free agency, they went ahead and had free agency. When everybody said move the draft, they went ahead and they found a way to hold, hold the draft. So when everybody says that the season's not going to start on time, the NFL is just acting like they're going to just stay the course. And to be honest, I believe them. You know, I, I think we're going to have Jets Bills September 13th, 2020. The question is where? You know, the stadium's not going to be full. We know that. Will there be 15,000 fans? Will it be zero fans? That's the question. Will it be played at MetLife Stadium? That all has to be on the table still. But there's going to be NFL games as scheduled in September. I absolutely believe that. You look at the other sports, the NBA, they they pride itself on being socially aware, being socially in tune. So they're not going to mess with that reputation. They're not going to risk any sort of bad press of coming back too soon. Major League Baseball, they've been bleeding fans in recent years. They're not going to risk coming back too soon. They can't afford the negative press, which ironically they're getting anyway, which I want to touch on in a second. But the NFL does not care. The NFL knows people are going to watch no matter what. The NFL does not ask for permission. They keep moving forward, and if they have an issue, they deal with it at that time. Usually they deal with it poorly, but they deal with it and they continue to have immense success because people love the product no matter what. 
And w- wouldn't it be somewhat ironic for the NFL to now all of a sudden say they care about player safety? Wouldn't it be ironic that a virus is what makes the NFL say, well, hold on now, we need our players to be healthy because they don't care about players that die from brain trauma in their 50s. They don't do it when the players are suicidal because of how much pain they're in later in life. They don't do it when players can't walk. They don't do it when players like Alex Smith need 17 surgeries after breaking his leg on the field. So why should they care now? What does caring about the virus say to the thousands of football players who have struggled to live normal lives after they retire? I think the NFL is going to have blood on their hands whether they play or they don't. So they're going to play. They're going to tell us they're taking the proper precautions and they're going to play. And the players union is going to go along with it because it's not nearly as strong as the baseball or basketball players union. And that's why you look at Major League Baseball right now and the issues that they're having with players saying, hold up. We don't care if the owners lose money. We're the product. We're the ones on the field in danger of catching the virus. Why why should we forfeit any of our salary? And what the baseball players are not thinking about right now is the public does not care. You know, the public will not feel bad for you if you're supposed to collect $5 million and now you're going to collect $2.5 million. Or you were supposed to collect $10 million and now you're going to collect $5 million. So where the baseball players missed the boat, in my opinion, is they should have came up with a proposal first. They needed to have the foresight to recognize Major League Baseball is losing ticket revenue. They're losing RSN revenue. They're losing national TV revenue because sponsors are not there. We just saw Coca-Cola announce that they're pausing their ad spending. So there's no money right now. Players agreed to prorated salaries, which is nice. But when they did that, nobody realized how bad the economic impacts of this pandemic were going to get just a few weeks later. So they had to know that the owners were going to bring money into the equation again before allowing a a season to start. And I I really believe that if the players came out and said, you know what? Yes, we agreed to a prorated salary already, but we want to offer to forfeit 25% of our new salary on top of that. recognizing times are tough, everybody is struggling, people need baseball as a distraction, and we want to help. So here's 25% of our salary back because we know that the team is going to be losing money. We know that the owners are going to be losing money and can't afford to have the season go on as currently constituted. So we're just going to offer 25% of our salary back. Baseball fans, the general public, everybody would have been like, oh my God, this is unprecedented. This is amazing of Major League Baseball players to offer this 25%. That's, that's about the amount that most major media executives and personnel have forfeited right now. You, know, you look at ESPN, it ranges between 15 and 30%. So it's a fair offer. It's a reasonable offer from the players if they did that. And the owners would have just looked awful. They would have looked absolutely awful with zero chance of winning the public court of opinion if they turned that offer down. Instead, the players waited for the owners to make the first move. The owners offer a 50-50 split. Players start whining. They start complaining. And now they look selfish and they look unreasonable. So from the owner's standpoint, if they don't get the 50-50 split, they don't care. Right now, the players are the ones that look bad. And if they don't reach an agreement, then the season just doesn't start. If the season doesn't start, players don't get paid. Don't you think that the owners from a business standpoint would just prefer that? Because the players are essentially furloughed. So if teams aren't getting gate revenue, and they're not going to be able to sell sponsorships and TV networks can't sell commercials, then that sounds like a business that would need to furlough its employees. And by not having a season, the owners are essentially furloughing the players. So it's take this 50-50 deal or you're getting nothing. 
And owners, they, they don't care if they're popular with fans. You know, fans can't stand the Wilpons. They can't stand the Dolans. Players are the ones with brands. Players are the ones with marketing deals, not owners. Players are the ones that are interacting with fans on a regular basis, not owners. So owners can handle if they're not popular. They can handle a bad press, especially if it's for a financially responsible business decision. So I, I don't know where the players go in baseball. Uh, they missed the boat by not offering to take a reduced salary before the owners offered the, the current plan that's on the table. They they knew it was coming one way or another, and now they're staring at a 50-50 split instead of offering a 25% reduction and winning the public's opinion. But with the NFL, one thing Roger Goodell has shown us is this is a league that can handle that bad, bad press. This is a league that it will welcome and be fine with that bad press. They'll ignore it and keep on moving because they're always – there are always enough people willing to buy and willing to watch football. So I absolutely expect football to start on time in September. I don't know what the other sports are going to do. Baseball can't afford the bad press that they have right now, and the NBA has built itself as being socially alert. The NFL, they'll play. Quick break. Apparently, some of you will hear the commercial and some of you won't, uh, so I have to put a break in here regardless. So either we're going to be back after one second or after a couple of minutes. But either way, we say back after this. All right, a couple of Jets, thing, a couple of non-schedule things that I want to run through quickly before saying goodbye. Uh, Logan Ryan, and I expect that we get a decision on him soon. I'm not going to be upset if the Jets sign Logan Ryan, but I'm also not going to laud it. And keep in mind that depending on when you're hearing this podcast, it's possible that we know where Ryan is going to be playing. But as much as he's considered a very good corner, he's another slot corner, and the Jets have those. The Jets need cover corners, which is obviously very difficult to find. But Ryan does not fill a hole on this team. They have Brian Poole, re-signed him earlier this offseason, who is not only a good slot corner, but pro football focus ranked him as the top slot corner in the league last year. And bringing him back for just $5 million, another one-year contract, back-to-back one-year contracts for Poole, another show-me contract was a fantastic move by Douglas. Then J.D. drafts Bryce Hall, who I had no issues with, grabbing in the fifth round. Some boards were projecting the second round. If he doesn't get hurt, he's likely a first-rounder. But ankle surgery halfway through the season last year with Virginia, the fact that he couldn't really get checked out by teams uh, because of COVID-19 restrictions made him drop, made him fall in the draft. He's a question mark. But if he's healthy, he's also he's a starter. And the issue is that he's projected to be more of a slot corner. So now that's Ryan, that's Poole, and that's Hall, all best suited at slot at the slot position. Then you have Ashton Davis, another person who came into the draft after suffering an injury last year. So he dropped, and he's viewed as another plug-and-play right-away guy who was drafted as a safety, but is a bit more of a Swiss Army knife type of player. But if Davis is going to play corner, it's again, it's again at this, the slot position. So I get the, the Jets have a really, really good defensive coordinator in Greg Williams, and he's going to find ways to use talent. And with Jamal Adams and Marcus May and Ashton Davis's safeties, with Davis also able to play the slot along with if they were to sign Ryan, along with Poole and along with Hall, yes, Williams can probably find a way to come up with some fancy blitz schemes and, and have them all produce in some way. But where's the cover corners? So I, I don't know if Ryan is going to end up signing with the Jets. I thought we'd have that figured out by now, now being Sunday. Uh, but last Thursday, it sounded like a done deal. Then it's backed off a bit. 
And if it were a done deal, I would have expected it to happen already by now. Uh, the silence kind of makes me believe that he'll end up elsewhere, and I actually think he makes more sense for a team like the Giants right now, considering DeAndre Baker was just charged with armed robbery. A professional football player who signed a $10 million contract, uh, getting involved with armed robbery is just tough to understand. But the Giants have not released him yet. Just told him to stay away for now. So you, you got to expect that they are going to release him soon. Maybe that's something that Ryan is waiting on, perhaps. Maybe once that, that gets sorted out and the Giants do part ways with Baker, maybe then they'll move quickly with Ryan. I, I, I'm not sure. But like I said, it, it is, if the Jets do sign Ryan, I'm not going to be upset with it because it, it is a, it's a good addition. He'll help the defense. I think Greg Williams will find ways to use him and all of the other slot corners on the team. But it really does not address the issue, which is the cover corner position. Someone that the Jets did sign... Recently, Frank Gore, and I thought this was a very solid addition without Bilal Powell, without Ty Montgomery, who signed with the Saints. The Jets need another running back, and normally bringing in a 37-year-old running back is not something I'd be in favor of, but somehow Frank Gore is still very effective. He produced close to 600 yards on the ground with Buffalo last year. Gore defies all logic because no running backs have that type of longevity. Few football players in general have that longevity outside of punters, kickers, and quarterbacks. I mean, even few athletes have that type of longevity. We're, we're talking about Le'Veon Bell possibly being over the hill. Bell was 27 last season. He's a full decade younger than Frank Gore. You know, at 28, 29 is when you start wondering if a running back is nearing the, the end of their career. Gore's 37. It's amazing, but it's also, it's great to, to get a veteran like that in the locker room. And how about, also, we'll give we'll give Adam Gase some credit because how about for everything that we have said about players not liking Adam Gase and for good reason, you know, they're they're mostly justified complaints, but credit Gase for doing enough when he was in Miami with Frank Gore two years ago to make Gore want to play with him again, play for him again. I think that's a very solid testament to Gase to be able to bring in a veteran like Gore who's been in a lot of locker rooms throughout his career to bring him to the Jets and I think that says, you know what? It says maybe Gase does have some likable qualities, even though Manish Mehta won't won't admit it. And, and I like Manish. He's one of the few sports writers that were kept on by the Daily News, and I enjoyed his willingness to call Gase and the Jets out last year. I was vocal in saying that. It was refreshing. But saying that the team, saying that Gase wronged Le'Veon Bell by, by the team signing a 37-year-old running back, come on now. That, that one just... That one just looks like you're trying too hard to find a complaint. And I was on board with, with most of Manisha's complaints last year, but this one was going way too far. But we should only we should only be so lucky to have things to complain about with the coach this season. Stay safe, stay smart, stay hopeful for football. Thanks for listening to the Brandon Condes Jets podcast. And as always, big up.